you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the 19th chapter of Revelation, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 19. Dr. Adrian Rogers uh, once told the story about a young guy who was learning to fly a single-engine airplane. And it was time for the landing phase of his instruction, and his flight instructor said to him, are you ready to descend? To which the guy said, yeah, let's do it. And so as the plane began to make its descent, this flight instructor looked over at the young guy and saw that he was calm, he was cool, he was collected, level-headed. There didn't seem to be a hint of nervousness about him. And so the flight instructor sort of thought to himself, you know, this guy is going to make an awesome pilot one day. Well, the plane descended, suddenly hit the runway with a thud, bounced 50 feet in the air, hit the ground again, and then skidded off the runway where it finally came to a screeching halt. And the flight instructor said, son, I've been doing this thing for a long time, and I believe that that was the worst landing ever done by a student pilot. To which the young guy replied, me? I thought you were the one landing this thing. <laughs> now, the thing is, given the state of affairs in our world today, a lot of people are confused about who exactly is in control of this chaotic planet. Uh, we want to know who's flying the plane of human history. Are we making our final approach? And if we are, who's flying this thing? We all want to know how, when, where it's going to land. And that's why Bible prophecy is so very important. Because it shows us how the God who holds eternity in his hands is also directing our lives. And that means we don't have to fear the outcome because God's word tells us that our God is making all things new. And that's the emphasis that we see in the book of Revelation, which we've been studying for quite some time now. As far as Bible prophecy is concerned, uh, I like what Dr. Tony Evans says. He says that studying prophecy is a lot like traveling in space. And we've learned a lot about Earth by going out into space, looking back at our planet. Uh, science has learned about weather patterns, the location of natural resources, and other good things that we might not have known had we stayed close to earth. Well, in the same way, prophecy takes us beyond the limitations of our time, space-bound world and circumstances and helps us see the big picture. And the result of seeing the big picture should be that we become better stewards of our time, better stewards of our resources, as we now live our lives in light of eternal values. And I think that's a good thought. And so that's why this 19th chapter of the book of Revelation is so very important. And we've come to the final four chapters of the Bible. And these are chapters that deal with the second coming of Christ and his future millennial kingdom, uh, the new heaven and the new earth. <clears throat> And really the truth that we find in these chapters is intended to fill our hearts with a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, 
because it reminds us of the wonderful, exciting future that God has planned for his people. Aren't you glad that the future is bright for the people of God? I mean, even now we're living in a world of darkness, a world where sin wreaks its havoc and takes its deadly toll out on our lives, literally corrupting everything that it touches. Man's world is set on fire by a multitude of problems. You add to that the fact that man tries to solve his problems on, on his own, which only seems to exacerbate the problem. Well, we know that the gospel is the solution to the problem, and that problem is solved only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells us that the Son of God has appeared once in our world already by means of the incarnation. And through his sinless life, his atoning death for sinners on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ has defeated the powers of darkness and he's reversed the effects of the curse. And the good news is that he now gives eternal life to all who repent or turn away from their sin and place their faith and trust in him. He is indeed making all things new. And as we learn in this passage of Scripture that we're going to read, one day in the future, King Jesus is going to appear for a second time. And he's going to be presented as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is indeed coming to reign. And so we come to this 19th chapter of Revelation, and this is a passage that presents Jesus Christ in a spectacular array of light and glory unlike any other passage of Scripture. And this passage provides us really a detailed glimpse of what it's going to be like when the king returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So with that in mind, I want you to read with me beginning in verse number 11 of Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> the Bible says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, time out for just a second. This passage is definitely not for the faint of heart. Bear in mind that there's a very difference between the supper that's being described here in these verses and the supper that's described in the first part of chapter 19 known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the 
Supper that believers have been invited to participate in as the bride of Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. Well, this great supper of God that's being described at the return of Jesus Christ at the Battle of Armageddon, unrepentant, wicked men are on the menu. So it's a very different supper. And so what's being described here, this is, this is the return of Jesus Christ at the very end of the age, the end of the tribulation period, as he's coming not to take sides, but to take over. And the armies of the Antichrist will be gathered against him. But as you'll notice in this passage, there really won't be a battle much at all when it comes to the Battle of Armageddon, because it's like what Martin Luther uh, wrote in his great hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. When it comes to the enemy, one little word shall fail him. One word from the mouth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords destroys the armies of Antichrist. Verse 19, John says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What a powerful, sobering passage of Scripture that points us to the return of King Jesus. And so this morning I want to speak from that subject, the return of the king. The return of Jesus Christ to the earth, this is the climax of history. And this is the event which is anticipated in so much of Bible prophecy. And the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ will indeed return at the end of the tribulation period to conquer his enemies, to usher in his millennial kingdom upon the earth. And the chronology of events, it's laid out for us right here in these verses in Revelation chapter 19. Now, as we come to consider this subject of the second coming, there really are four truths that I want to draw your attention to uh, over the next couple of weeks, both this morning. We'll come back to this next week. I really don't anticipate getting much further than just the first point that I want to emphasize by way of introduction. And so the first thing that I want you to notice with me is the eager anticipation that we should have when it comes to this subject of the return of Jesus Christ. And then later on, we'll come back to this. We'll follow that up with the appearing of Jesus Christ itself as it's described here in this 19th chapter. And there's some wonderful things that we need to know about what will be involved when Jesus Christ does indeed appear for a second time. And then what will that accomplish? When he comes, what is he coming to accomplish upon the earth at his second coming? And then we'll finish up with some application that the second coming should have on our lives as individual Christian men and women. So first things first, the eager anticipation of the return of the king. You will remember that the first part of the chapter really reveals the anticipation of the multitudes in heaven who are eagerly waiting for this event described here in the second half of the chapter. If you glance back up at verse number 10, we're told that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that simply means that the essence of prophecy is to bear witness to him. 
God's not given us prophecy and the details of prophecy for the simple fact of sort of piquing our curiosity. No, prophecy is given with a very practical result, and that is to fix our attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of Jesus, this is, this is the essence of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus, this is the spirit of Bible prophecy. Jesus is the central figure of Scripture. He's the central figure of human history. And so all of our attention, it's not to be on those future events necessarily, but on the one who will bring those events to pass. And so there's this sense in which all of the prophetic scriptures bring our attention to Christ and this moment for which history has long anticipated the return of the king. And so before we get into all of the details of that event as it's presented here in this text, I do think it's helpful for us to just consider by way of introduction what the Bible has to say, sort of generally speaking, about the second coming of Christ. We need to consider just why exactly Christ must return to the earth. The issue is not maybe he will return. It's not a subject that's up for debate or deliberation. No, he must return to the earth. Jesus will indeed one day return to the earth, and there are a handful of reasons why this is something that we can eagerly anticipate. So reason number one, we should anticipate the coming of the Lord because Bible prophecy establishes it. This is something that you can anticipate because it's established by the prophetic scriptures. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return to earth one day in bodily, visible form, which means that he is coming literally. And so this is not something that we spiritualize. When the scripture talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is not, this is not a metaphor. You know, liberal uh, theologians throughout the years have tried to minimize the doctrine of the second coming by sort of explaining it in terms of a metaphor. Well, it's really just a metaphor of what Jesus will do in your life the moment you receive him or welcome him in in faith. Well, that's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ literally, physically, in bodily form is going to return for a second time to earth. We're not talking about an invisible or spiritual re return. This is not a figure of speech. No, he's coming literally and physically just as he came in his first advent as a baby born in Bethlehem, so also will Jesus Christ literally come again at his second advent. Erwin Lutzer says it this way, how sure can we be that Christ will return to earth? Well, just as sure that he came to earth as a baby in Bethlehem, suffered, died, was raised from his grave. Keep in mind that there was a time when the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophecy. Today, we know that it's history. Well, even so, the return of Jesus Christ is prophecy today, but it will be history at some future date. And so the fact that he is coming is just as certain as the fact that he already came. And that's a wonderful thing to consider. We're talking about a central tenet of the Christian faith. This is not some fringe belief this is a truth that's central to the teaching of the Bible. And to deny the fact that Jesus is going to return is to deny the authority of the Bible. And so the Bible's not vague when it comes to this subject. 
You know that nearly one quarter of the Bible is prophetic? And approximately one third or more of those prophetic passages are somehow related to the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is a major theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. As far as the New Testament is concerned, 23 out of 27 books in the New Testament explicitly refer to the physical, literal second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. There are 260 total chapters in the New Testament, and yet there are 318 direct references to the second coming in the New Testament. Well, that means that basically one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament somehow deal with this issue of the second coming of Jesus Christ. For every one prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, there are eight prophecies that specifically deal with this issue of his second coming to the earth. So this is a major, major subject that's given a lot of ink in the pages of the Bible. Jesus is coming literally. And as this passage reveals in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is coming visibly. Notice John sees heaven opened up. And that's the second time in the book of Revelation that this phrase is used. And the first time is back in chapter 4, verse 1, as heaven is opened up to let John in. Well, here, heaven is opened up to let Jesus out. Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He's not coming back secretly. He's not coming back like some undercover agent or something. No, he's coming back literally. He's coming back visibly. Something else to consider is that he's coming back suddenly. Many times in the New Testament, his return is compared to a thief in the night or like a flash of lightning. Matthew 23, uh, verse 27, as lightning flashes in the east, shines to the west, so also will it be when the Son of Man comes. Let me ask you a question. You ever been out uh, yesterday? Good illustration of this. I was out mowing my grass yesterday, yesterday afternoon, and that verse came to my mind. The storm clouds were beginning to build. I had about half of my backyard mowed. I'm out there push mowing. Let me tell you something. When the lightning bolts begin dancing around, you don't want to be holding on to a push mower in your backyard. I don't want to be a crispy critter. Why? Because lightning seems to be, it's so unpredictable. In just a split second, a bolt of lightning can change your life and rock your world, man. Jesus said that's how it's going to be when he returns, like lightning shining uh, in the east and flashing to the west, so also it will be when the, San, the Son of Man returns. Jesus tells the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, I'm coming like a thief and you won't know at what hour I come against you. And so there's this sense in which the second coming is imminent and the next thing to happen on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church at the coming of the Lord. Now, keep in mind, that's not what's being described here in Revelation chapter 19. Notice Jesus isn't coming for his church in chapter 19. He's coming with his church. Because at this point, in the chronology of Revelation, at the end of the tribulation, he's already come for his church in rapture. The next thing to happen, there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled or happen for the rapture of the church to take place. 
You'll notice there's no mention of the rapture in these verses. The rapture, this is a sudden, signless event that's going to take the world by surprise when it happens. And the Bible says that there's a generation of believers who will be living in the last days who will be raptured when Christ returns for his church before the judgment of the tribulation period begins. At least that's how I understand uh, the teaching of the New Testament on this subject. It's what Paul calls a mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And someone said that's a good verse to put on the wall of the nursery in the local church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> no, the changing that's being described here is the changing that's going to happen when Christ comes for his church and a generation of believers who are alive at the time are going to be raptured and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And they're going to be given a resurrection body. The dead in Christ will be the first to receive their resurrection body. Someone says, why is it going to be that the dead in Christ are... Well, because they've got six feet further to go than we do. That's why they're going to get theirs first. But the point is, we're going to be changed, and it's going to happen in a moment. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. A split second. That's the idea here. It's going to take the world by surprise, and then judgment will be unleashed upon the world of unbelieving humanity. And the tribulation and the events of the tribulation will happen and all of that will take place. And then the end of that period of time, Jesus, who's already come for his church, will be coming with his church as he comes to take over and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so why is this something we should eagerly anticipate? Well, because Bible prophecy establishes this truth, this important truth of the second coming of Jesus. Now, notice there's a second reason why this is something we should eagerly anticipate, and it's because Christ's own promise assures us of his return. Bible prophecy establishes it, but Christ's promise assures it. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about the subject of his return. No one in Scripture said more about his second coming than he did he mentioned it at least 20 separate times in the gospel records. His disciples are commanded nearly 50 times to be ready for his return. And the truth of his return is intended to be something that brings us great comfort as believers. Think about what he says in John chapter 14, referring to the rapture and what a comforting thought this is to believers. He says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this, I will come again. That's a promise. Jesus said, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And so the Lord could not have been any more clearer. This is a promise he intends to keep. Matthew 16, verse 27, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's the event being described here in Revelation chapter 19. And again, the language that Jesus uses there is that of certainty. 
Matthew chapter 24, uh, after describing all of those events of the tribulation period, Jesus tells his disciples what that event will involve, and evidently there will be a lot of false claims about his coming before it actually happens. And Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. Here's the application. Uh, You don't know what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So over and over again, Jesus promises that he will indeed return. And let me tell you something. He said that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. And he intends upon keeping his promise. So why should we anticipate the second coming? Bible prophecy establishes it. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that Christ's own promise assures us of his return. And then reason number three, the plan of God demands that Jesus Christ return. You know that God has a plan. He's a plan for the church, and that demands that Jesus Christ return. He has a plan for Israel, and that demands that Jesus Christ return. The Scripture says that when Jesus Christ returns, and the the, the tribulation period is a time of Jacob's trouble, it's called that for a reason because it's going to be during the tribulation that Israel is going to turn to their Messiah. The prophet Zechariah says that they're going to look upon him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn. So God has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for his church. God has a very real plan for the nations of the world, and this demands the return of Jesus. What's the plan that God has for the nations? That Jesus rules the nations. That's the plan. Right now, the nations of the world have come under the tyranny of sin and Satan, and there's a sense in which the devil is running this world system like an illegitimate crime boss. He's a usurper. The Bible says that in the beginning, God originally gave dominion over creation to Adam, who forfeited that dominion when he disobeyed God and succumbed to the enemy's lies. Adam abdicated his place of dominion, and now his world has come under the power of sin and the power of evil. And the devil has been the ruler of a fallen world system ever since. It's an empire of dirt and decay. And the reason that there's so much wrong in the world today, it's because this world has come under the tyranny of the evil one. And yet we know that the Bible says that the reason the Son of God appeared for the first time was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus uh, Jesus said that the enemy is a liar. He's a thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what Satan's doing in the world of fallen humanity. But God has a plan for the world. And the plan for the world is to establish his king upon an eternal throne. Jesus Christ is coming, and when he comes, that dominion that Adam abdicated and forfeited will be regained by the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to establish his perfect rule and reign upon this earth. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's the plan. Now, you look at things as it currently is in the world, as they currently stand, and it seems like things aren't going according to plan. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. Wars and strife and violence and evil seems to be running amok, and we wonder, are things going according to plan or not? Who's flying this plane? (laughs) 
But folks, let me tell you something. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, he is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and God is directing human history to this runway and this conclusion. It's the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And so we can anticipate this. Bible prophecy establishes it. The Lord's own promise assures us that this is the case. The plan of God demands it. And then one final reason that we should anticipate the second coming, it's this. Christian productivity requires that Christ return. Did you know that for you to live a productive, fruitful Christian life, you need to be firmly convinced of the second coming of Jesus Christ? And so this involves fruitfulness in the Christian life because my hope and my outlook on life is directly connected to my view of the return of Christ. And so it's in this sense that the doctrine of the second coming, this is intensely practical for our lives as Christians. In fact, there may be nothing more practical and nothing more influential than living with this acute awareness that Jesus Christ is indeed coming soon. Paul told Titus, he said, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? Well, it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. And so we're waiting for the blessed hope, but that doesn't mean that we're sort of waiting, twiddling our thumbs while we're waiting. It doesn't mean that we've retreated from our Christian responsibility. If anything, this increased awareness that Jesus Christ is returning, this is intended to motivate me to obedience. It's intended to move me to worship and glad surrender. What if Jesus Christ came in rapture for his church before we got out of this service? Before the day was out, what if this were the last opportunity that we have to give, the last opportunity that we have to sing together, the last opportunity that we have to open up the Word of God together? And I don't know about you, but I don't want it to just be business as usual. And what will keep it from being business as usual is that you and I are gripped by the thought that Jesus Christ is coming again, and that's a fact, Jack. Nothing's going to keep him from coming. Nothing. And so this helps us live a balanced, effective, productive Christian life. It instills within us a sense of accountability before God. It reinforces true priority in my life. When I'm gripped by the truth of the second coming, it means I'm not going to waste my time worrying about details and things ultimately that are inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. It means I'm going to get through relational strife in a timely manner, and I'm going to work through that for the glory of God, and I'm not going to hold a grudge against my neighbor, but I'm going to forgive as I've been forgiven, and I'm going to do it with haste. Why? Because Jesus the King is coming back, and there's no time for me to dilly-dally. If there are people in my life that I love, that I live close to, and I'm not sure if they're saved, the return of Jesus Christ ought to be something to motivate me to live my life and to preach this gospel with a sense of urgency. Why? Because time is short. 
And eternity is so very long. And some of you have got children and grandchildren that are one breath away, one heartbeat away from a devil's hell. Would to God that the truth of Christ's coming would motivate the church to get up off our blessed assurance and to do something with this gospel that we've been entrusted with. And it enables me to go through life with all of its challenges with a proper perspective. When I get a crushing blow from the doctor telling me about cancer or my loved one receives some diagnosis, my spouse, the child, when I experience a setback and a major disappointment in my life, what is it that's going to get me through that challenging circumstance but this blessed hope that I have that this light and momentary affliction is only working for me this more exceedingly weight of glory that's out of this world and it's Jesus Christ and his return and the reward that's mine, that will be mine, that I will receive when I see the Lord. Doesn't that motivate you? So Christian productivity absolutely demands that I'm gripped by the thought that Jesus Christ is coming again. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, after having explained the truth of Christ's return, he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Those believers had loved ones who died in the Lord. They were concerned that they weren't going to see their loved ones again. And the Apostle Paul explains to them the truth of the rapture and what the church has to look forward to at the coming of the Lord. And and then he says, here's some practical application. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And the writer of Hebrews says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but so much the more should we gather together? Should we encourage one another with the truth of the second coming? So much the more as we see the day of the Lord's coming approach. He's coming. Be encouraged. Be challenged. Be motivated. You know, I like to consider myself a sports fan. I mean, I'm not a major fanatic like some of y'all are. But I do, I do like college basketball. And I've got to confess, I don't keep up with the season, but I really like to watch college basketball whenever it gets tournament time. There's just something about watching those college teams compete in the NCAA tournament that I like. There's a very real difference in the NCAA tournament and the way teams play as opposed to those preseason tournaments those invitational type tournaments, you know, the kinds that they have out there on like aircraft carriers and in Hawaii and that kind of thing. You watch those games and, you know, there's, there's intensity, but it's not a whole lot of intensity. There's talent being showcased, but, you know, it's not, it's not the big guns. Nobody wants to get hurt because they've got the whole season ahead to look forward to. But you see, those teams that make the NCAA tournament, when they start playing those tournament games, they pull out all stops. And there are Cinderella stories every year in the NCAA tournament, how I guess a 16 seed squaring off with a number one seed. There are upsets every year. Dreams are realized every year by some team. Well, you know that in college basketball, there are two halves 
The first half, there's a halftime, and then there's a second half. But in those tournament games, when you're watching the first half, you, you notice that the players are playing with intensity. They're giving their very best effort to win the game. But then they go into the locker room at halftime, they come out in the second half, and they play with a different level of intensity. The final minutes of the game, it's amazing how these athletes who are exhausted, whose muscles are strained, it's amazing to me how they actually raise the intensity levels of their play in the final couple minutes of the second half. Every inbounds pass becomes an opportunity to steal the ball, to make a basket. Every dribble of the ball seems to be contested. I mean, it's full court press, both sides of the court. All eyes are on the clock as it's ticking away down to the final seconds. And really, no matter how important the game, competitors just play differently in the final minute of the game than they do in the first half. Now, for the life of me, I don't know why it is that we seem to approach the Christian life like it's some kind of inconsequential preseason game. But so many within the church approach Christian living as if it were nonchalant, no big thing. I've got the rest of my life to worry about getting things right here, getting things right there. A lot of people, they never give a second's thought to the fact that Jesus Christ may return today. Their life may end today. They may draw their final breath today, and they stand before the Lord. You're young, and you think, well, I'll live to be 90, 95, 100. I've got the rest of my life, man. I'm only in the first quarter of this thing. What if we're down to the final seconds? We ought to go about the Christian life as if we were in the final seconds. And at the end of the game, it's so very close. And at the end, there's only going to be one team standing, one winner when it comes to Victor's circle, nobody else. That's why Paul says this is why you should, you should anticipate. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. And listen to what he says. He says, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not me only, but to all of those who have what? Loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Do you love the fact that Jesus is coming again? Is this something that gets you up out of bed in the morning and causes you to go about your day with a sense of purpose and enthusiasm? The truth of the second coming doesn't mean that we all need to quit our jobs and put on white robes and climb trees and wait for Jesus to come again. That's insane. No, it means you go about every detail of your life, what seems to be the mundane and inconsequential. The truth of Christ's coming brings meaning to everything in my life. Everything ought to be an act of worship to my Lord and obedient to my Lord. Witness for my Lord. Why? Because the King is coming again. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Are you eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus Christ? I pray that you are. If you're a believer, this is something for you to eagerly anticipate if you're not saved, this ought to be a truth 
that brings conviction to your heart. When you know that Jesus Christ is coming, are you ready to meet him? If you're not saved, listen, don't put off salvation. Don't delay obedience to this gospel. That's why the Bible says now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation because tomorrow may not come. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you'd say, Pastor, I don't know that I'm saved. I need to be saved. Listen, right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith before God, turn away from your sin. Believe that Christ died for you on the cross and that he rose again from the dead and that he's King of kings and Lord of lords. Confess him with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Parker's going to lead us here in just a moment, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to make that public. You can respond and come pray with me or some of our other pastors here off to the sides. We'd love to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with Christ and talk to you about baptism. Christian, are you living your life with a sense of anticipation and urgency? How is the truth of the Lord's return motivating you to serve and motivating you to give? Husbands, how is it motivating you to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself sacrificially for her? Wives, how does this truth motivate you to submit yourself to your husband? To have a Christ-honoring home? To devote your children to God? To prioritize the things of God? All of that is to be practical Christian productivity as a result of being gripped by this great truth. Jesus is coming. Lord, thank you for your word. God, may you take this truth and so motivate us as a church family. Knowing that ministry happens, Lord, as we're the church scattered, whether it be a VBS and an underserved community, whether it be a conversation that we're able to have this week with someone at work that doesn't know God, our neighbors, ways we can serve. Oh God, may the truth that Jesus is coming again motivate us to live on mission with a sense of urgency. The King is coming. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.